When Jesus sees the crowds, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. How do we see people today? I mean, sometimes I see the actions of what are shepherdless sheep, just neurotic behavior, fearful behavior, mm-hmm. uh, irrational behavior, mm-hmm. and I get annoyed. But Jesus sees that and he sees it's because they have no shepherd. Mm-hmm. Here's how I love... I, to get the, the picture of how Jesus sees them, the ESV, which I read from, it said he saw them as harassed and helpless. But I, I got a com- composite or composite, there you go, a, a collection of what the other translations say, and almost none of them are the same. It shows how complex the condition of the people Jesus saw and what he saw in them. So um, I'm not going to name the translations, but I am going to just name, uh, just go through what they say. So harassed and helpless, weary and scattered. Boy, I can feel like that. Bewildered and helpless. Distressed and dejected. Confused and aimless, distressed and dispirited, in distress and cast down. So, this is sheep without a shepherd. But in the larger scope, and what Jesus is about to do, bleeding into chapter 10, we see that sheep without a shepherd are humans without discipleship. Sheep without a shepherd are what humans are without discipleship. And in Matthew's call to make disciples, to have the church make disciples, to disciple disciples through his gospel, he wants us to understand that if the church does not disciple its own, if it does not disciple others into the church, this is what humans look like. They look like shepherdless sheep. That's a, an undiscipled person. And it makes sense. We see these same conditions within the church, within the church that has the message and the answer and the hope and has the compassion of Christ. And yet we still see harassed and helpless, weary, scattered, bewildered, helpless, distressed, dejected, confused, aimless, distressed, dispirited, indistressed, and cast down Christians. I think we, we have a real need for discipleship, to be discipled, to be disciplers, and Jesus is about to give his sermon on mission. Um, we're not going to get into all of it because just we're going to do that in its own message. But we're going to look at this section of Jesus calling his disciples into the harvest. He said, look, disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus wants laborers for his harvest. He wants disciplers for the shepherdless. This is what we're called to. So there's four themes that stick out and are going to guide us through this. We see Jesus's compassionate heart. We'll look at that first. We see his call to prayer. We see his assurance that we will have power. And then we see in conclusion that there is a community that we're given to do this work in the midst of. There's a communal context in this. 
So we'll begin with compassion, 936, as you saw. Jesus had compassion, or, or some translations, like his heart went out for the people, or his heart was inwardly moved. There's something he feels. There's a gut reaction when he sees the shepherdless people who need discipleship. He feels it. And we must wonder, do we feel the same thing? One of the important things to understand is Matthew's intentional ordering of things. He's not necessarily trying to tell his story in chronological order. He's trying to convey the Jesus story in a thematical order. As we know, he's got the five sermons, which are meant to reflect the new Christian Torah, the new teachings of the new Moses, the better Moses. And um, so we're coming up on his second sermon here in chapter 10. Um, what we need to understand then is what G, what Matthew's doing is he intentionally picks the Sermon on the Mount as the first sermon. He shows Jesus serving people in chapters 8 and 9, and then chapter 10 is the second sermon, and that's where he calls us to do precisely what he did to others in their need in chapters 8 and 9. But we can, we can feel bewildered by this call and think, oh my goodness, I don't even have the heart Jesus has for people. I don't think I'm capable of doing this. And that's where we have to understand the bridge here. Jesus' compassion and what he's doing for the, the shepherdless people, he is doing as, uh, he's doing in between the Sermon on the Mount and his Sermon on Missions. This happens in between. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to prepare us for the Sermon on Missions. So the first, we can get to the second. We can get to mission and to service when we are properly prepared through the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Make sense? So the first prepares us for the second. There's a graduation. There's a progress. I don't think Jesus expects you and I to just get up and have compassion for people if we don't even know what it's like to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus. So here's how the Sermon on the Mount prepares us for this call to missions. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount taught us about Christ's likeness. It showed us what it's like to be like Christ. But this upcoming sermon on missions is going to show us Christ's labor. This is what it looks like to labor for him. So if we're like him, then we can labor like him. The Sermon on the Mount shows us Christ's word. Right, he's 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 showing us that this is hear me. This is how I expect from my disciples. And then we see his work. He calls us to do his work. When we receive Christ's word and obey his commands in the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to find ourselves transformed in such a way that we can then serve and go on mission and be a shepherd to the shepherd list, as he will teach us in the second sermon. Um, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to become a disciple. But this next Sermon on Missions is going to show us how to make disciples, how to go out there and reach out to them. The Sermon on the Mount teach, uh, helps us to live Jesus' commands. This is what I ask you to do, and then we live it. And that enables us to give Jesus' compassion. So it's when the Christian learns to walk in the Beatitudes, to practice giving and praying and fasting, and to have a proper relationship with their possessions and not to be judging others, but embracing them as opportunities to share their possessions and to love. When we treat our neighbor as ourselves, when we do the Sermon on the Mount, we are transformed in such a way that the compassion of Christ becomes the compassion that we have for other people. 
That's the logic of Matthew's gospel. The Sermon on the Mount we took our time through so that now we can see this transition of Jesus' compassion and he's going to call us to join his labor in this harvest. So that's um, the compassion. That's how we get there. (laughs) Don't have compassion for others? Maybe it's time that we do what Jesus tells us to do and he changes our heart in the process. So Matthew 9 now, verse 38. Matthew 9, verse 38 this is then when he says, you're right, the harvest, this is verse 37, the harvest plentiful, labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Verse 38 tells us to pray. That's our next response. We do what he's taught us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. We develop compassion. Now he tells us to pray. The next step is to pray. It's not to get up and create programs. It's to pray. He did not call us to a uh, he did not call us to a missions meeting. He called us to a prayer meeting. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Um, because look, we can mess up the serving if we don't do the praying first. Yes. Now, th- what's interesting about this call to pray to the Lord of the Harvest to send out laborers is that this is the second of three times in Matthew's gospel that Jesus gives us a specific item to pray for. And if he does that, I pay attention and say, we should pray these things. What's the first thing Jesus tells us to pray? Oh, good job. I'm so proud of you guys. Yeah, he said, pray then like this. He told us, pray this. And then we, we of course, examined that in a week, right? We looked at that. It took a whole week to look at the Lord's Prayer. This is the second one. What does he tell us to pray? Pray that the Lord will send out laborers into the harvest. There are shepherdless people needing discipleship. Pray that there will be laborers. Now, you hear that and you're like, oh, well, shouldn't we just go be the laborer? Ah, yes, but Jesus wants us to pray for laborers. Here's what's cool about it is if you pray things like that, Lord, send out laborers. You have officially volunteered. You better be paying attention. If you pray, and know this, like if you pray, Lord, have mercy on Joanna's situation, you have officially part, you have officially volunteered as tribute to help Joanna's situation if the Lord should, should call you. Like when we pray for things, you are actually inserting yourself into it as a volunteer if the Lord picks you. So be aware when you pray. And so Jesus tells us to pray for labors. I said there's three. I can't leave you guys without the third, even though it has nothing to do with tonight's message. But um, the third time he t- what he tells us to pray for Matthew's gospel is to pray for alertness. Do you know where that is? Yeah, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells Peter, James, and John, pray, what does he say again? Uh, pray that you enter not into temptation. These are three things we should be praying. The Lord's Prayer for laborers in the harvest and that we would not enter into temptation. So, which is actually part of the Lord's Prayer anyways. Um, So he calls for a prayer meeting. I want to quote Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary. I thought he said something that just, just was resonating with my heart. And I thought, oh my goodness, he just described you guys. So I just want to encourage you with this quote from him. He says, prayer meetings need not be unusual meetings. Every Christian gathering, particularly those gathered around the exposition of the word and the administration of the supper, can have a healthy prayer meeting component. 
We spent 15 minutes singing songs and we spent 15 minutes praying prayers where we confess ourselves as the prodigal. A healthy prayer meeting component, right? Do we have, he continues, do we have too much singing and too little praying and communing in contemporary church gatherings? I thought, man, it's so refreshing to hear a scholar nonetheless say, we should have more prayer at church. Because so often, you know, prayer at church is just like, it's, it's literally just the transition from worship music to sermon. Or if something's happening on stage and we don't want an awkward silence, someone prays. And nothing wrong with using that as a transition, but sometimes you can, if you're listening carefully, the prayers are prayed like they're transition moments. Um, and we just should be more intentional about that. But cool. So, we, yeah, we get to have lots of prayer after the sermon. So um, let's not forget to pray that the Lord will send laborers into his harvest. Who's on your heart? Who does your heart beat with compassion? We should be praying that God would send laborers into the harvest. Yeah, okay. So the third theme. So we saw um, Christ's compassion, prayer, and now third, power. Like, okay, wow, there's this harvest and I don't feel qualified. That's always our reaction. I don't know how to reach this person. I don't know how to disciple people. I am not capable. Well, that's a dumb excuse. Ask Moses. He tried it. And Moses tried, I think it was like six times he tried to excuse himself from God's call to deliver Israel. And at one point, Moses was just told in modern language, shut up, Moses. Who made the mouth? (laughs) Right? His last excuse was, I can't talk. And he's like, I made the mouth. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do with your mouth. And Moses like, Job for a moment. I repent in dust and ashes. <laughs> um, we need to understand the same. Okay? Um, there's an important order in the text if you look at 10 verse 1. So it's, it's not a, an accident. We miss this because chapter 10 makes it feel like it's a section break. No, no, no. Jesus is praying pray for laborers to go in the harvest, and then we see laborers right here that are elected by him. So he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. To do what? To do what Jesus did in chapters 8 and 9. Cast out unclean spirits and heal every affliction. So cool. We are to do what he does. Now, I know there's degrees of like, is that possible to heal people? We don't see that very often. And look, we don't have to try to work up phony healings. But the point is that we are obedient to Christ and he will do through his people what he wants to do. Okay, that's what we're asked to do. We must be willing to say yes. But again, Brandon, I don't have the ability. Well, I'm sure the disciples didn't either. Do you know who these people are? They are all failed disciples of other, of other rabbis. That's what anyone who is doing a common daytime job is a failed disciple. Every single Jewish boy was raised to memorize the scriptures. And if they didn't get that far, they weren't adopted by a rabbi. If they were adopted by a rabbi, then they would follow him. They'd be tested and tested and the weak would be dropped out. You're no longer following me. And so when you're no longer following a rabbi, what do you do? You do, you go and join dad in his work. You take on the family business. So the fact that Jesus is calling these um, slightly older people out of the family business to follow him shows that they have already failed discipleship with another teacher. Like these guys are not any more qualified than us. As someone else once said, it's like Jesus called the junior varsity team to follow him. He called the B team. This is not the A team. Um, 
you can go down the list, you know, and talk about all of them. Like we know Peter's failures. Um, James and John were fishermen. Say so it was Andrew. Um, Bartholomew, if he is Nathaniel, he's the one. Is he? He's the one that said, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Like, there's no way this guy. This can he? By the way, people uh, in Orange County ask, "Can anything good come out of Twin Peaks?" Uh, <laughs> Some, yeah, yeah so I'll just stop right there. Um, and then we have, yeah, we just have a bunch of people that are Simon the Canaanian. Canaanian is just a transliteration, it, it probably means zealot, Simon the zealot. Like this guy is part of a uh, terrorist group. Or do you even say cult? Not quite a cult, it's more violent than that. Um, not Kool-Aid style, I mean like knife style. <laughs> um, yeah, these guys weren't good. And Jesus calls him, Matthew is a tax collector. He's vile. He's not a spiritual candidate at all. Like this is what Jesus calls. So then watch what happens in verse one again. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. The order is really important. He called them and then he gave them authority. So you've probably heard the saying before, uh, where Christ appoints, he empowers us. Or where God calls, he equips. Where he appoints, he empowers. He calls these 12 and then he gives them authority. They don't have to cast out demons or heal or do anything. Make disciples in Jesus' name in their own power. They do it because Christ called them to. And as they walk in obedience and as they follow his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, they are given the ability to be people that others can follow. Sometimes it's as simple as that. You get your heart right with God and you are already a leader. There's something for someone to follow. You may not know what to say or what to do, but your being involved in their life is eons beyond where they are, and they will they will want to be like you. And you will never feel like it, especially if we continue to remind ourselves that we're sinners too, and that we're the prodigal. There'll always be the reminder of we're not walking around like, oh yeah, people should follow me. I mean, I don't know why anyone follows Connor. They should follow me. Um, that's a terrible, that's not a good discipler, right? But it's as we follow him, we become followable. Um, So he empowers. Uh, Notice also that he calls the harvest plentiful back up in 9, verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you notice that? Jesus didn't say, we need people to go out and sow seed. We need people to make the harvest grow up. He said, look at the harvest. It's ready. This is the work of another on their behalf. This is the work of God. It, that's why he called it the Lord of the harvest. He's already done the preparation. He's simply looking for people who will gather the harvest in. So the power is not ours. It's his. He's simply looking for people. He has the power. He needs the people who will say, yes, we will go and gather your harvest. That's the call. And then fourth, so we have um, the compassionate heart of Jesus. We have prayer. We have um, power from him. And then finally, we have the community. He calls us into community, or all this happens in the context of community. There's no, in the Bible, there are no Lone Ranger disciples. There are no John Wayne disciples or um, Chuck Norris or 
Um, any of your other manly heroes, Jackie, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of too, Jackie Chan. Like there, these don't exist in the Bible. There is no one person who's got it all together. Discipleship in the Bible is always in the plural. Now I'm over speaking. You will find the word disciple in the singular, but there are usually reasons for that. For example, Jesus is referring to a specific person, this disciple of mine, or there's a, like in chapter 10, we're going to see it twice, disciple and singular, because he's just simply describing what a disciple is. But when you see the disciples, there are always with disciples in the Bible. Discipleship is always in the context of relationship and people, which means you cannot be a disciple and have private church time that does not exist, scripturally speaking. Disciples are in the context of a community. Um, We see this as we go through chapter 10 here, but I just want to read one quote from Michael Wilkins. It's a book I had to read in seminary, but it had some pretty cool things to say about discipleship. And he said this, he said, um, he's a, he was a professor at Biola. I don't know if he still is, but he said uh, that the plural form is normally used for disciple expresses an important point. Individual disciples are always seen in conjunction with the community of disciples, whether as Jesus's intimate companion or as the church. The church is where we can be in a discipleship community. It's what it should be. Now, um, here in verse 2 through 4, we see Jesus naming calling his disciples. Now, you need to know that Jesus had many disciples, at least many who were claiming to be his disciples. Um, And in Luke, we know that he at least had a a broader scope of 70 that he sent out. So the 12 are special disciples. And actually what you properly call them are apostles. Of all his disciples, he appoints 12 to be a leadership structure of the church. So that these guys would be teaching what Jesus taught them and overseeing that this church is structured properly as it grows. That was the role of the apostles. Um, so right there, we, we see both community and we see structure. That there's a 12. And these 12 are all, they work together. Now, what's really cool is as you look at the 12, um, you find out that Jesus within the 12 ordered small groups of and accountability groups within the 12. So what um, Michael Wilkins did, whom I quoted a moment ago, he, in his book, he lines up this list from Matthew. He lines up the list of disciples in Mark. He lines up the list of disciples in Luke. And then he lines up the list of disciples in Acts. John doesn't have a list. He just randomly names them. Um, So he takes those four lists and you compare and contrast them. He has a nice chart that makes it really easy. And what emerges from the comparison is fascinating. It probably wouldn't, there's three findings. It probably wouldn't surprise you that the first finding is that Peter is listed first in every single list. Um, that Peter had primacy among the 12 is not debated by almost any serious Bible student. Uh, people just tend to like to avoid that because they don't want Pope themes coming up. But it's true. Peter was probably twice the age of most of the disciples. Most rabbis had a point man who was kind of their assistant and kind of was, you know, a little bit of a babysitter for the other younglings. Peter was probably that. And when we say that Peter was the um, first um, among the apostles, we need to clarify and be very specific. He was not the first over the apostles. 
That's a Pope model. He was the first among the apostles. That is a collective style of leadership. You have a partnership in which all are involved in leading, but you always need one point man at times, right? And that was Peter, first among the apostles. Um, So that's one thing we see. Uh, You could say in the church, we're all disciples here. Um, Your pastor or pastors tend to be the one among, not the one over. That's, I hope that I'm one among you and not one over you. Um, So I'm Peter, (laughs) not Pope Peter though, please no. Um, Then, so we see a leader in all the lists. There's a clear leader. Second thing we see in all the lists is that there are triads um, of four. So that each group is actually clumped to be three groups of four disciples. And here's what's really interesting. While the names of them kind of switch around, what doesn't change is that the four names are always listed together. So you'll always, like you have right here, what are our first four names? Um, We have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Those first four, they're always named together. The next four are always named together. And the last four are always named together. Um, And the first one of each of these groups is always named first in every group. So in other words, there is a clear leader of a group of four within the 12. So obviously Peter is one, but Philip in verse three, Philip is always named before Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Always. So it seems that Philip was recognized as a sub leader within the 12. And then um, the last four are where we, James, son of Alphaeus, is always listed before Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. So, yeah, so we got little communities within the 12. And then one more layer is that Matthew uniquely, did you notice when we read it? Matthew gives each of them pairs. Probably because he sent them out, Mark says, two by two. So let's read it again and see if you notice. Jesus partners them up. So it's almost like you have your smaller account, like your coffee partner, right? How are your devotions going? How's your prayer, man? <laughs> That's probably what's going on. Um, obviously not coffee, but... Um, so he says, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother. Philip, the son of Zebedee, and James's brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot. Poor Simon. (laughs) Really, Jesus? Him? Uh, Of course, he didn't know who Judas would be. Simon didn't know who Judas would be at the time. But probably at some point, when Judas betrays Jesus, all of them are looking at Simon. How did you not see this coming? (laughs) And Jesus is like, calm down, brothers. I saw it coming. Blessed are you, Simon, for putting up with him. All right. Um, so there's a community structure that we see. And this is important. Like, you know, when we get together in at church gatherings and there's discipleship in the teaching of the word, there's discipleship in prayer and worship and communion. There's discipleship here, yes. But it's the, it's the discipleship of the 12, if you will. We also need discipleship among the four where there's a much more intimate and we can get together and share a meal. And then there's the discipleship of the two where you really can dive. Like this is someone you trust everything with. We should have somebody in our faith that we can spill literally anything with and that we can drop in at a moment's notice. That's an important discipleship relationship. 
Um, so that's that's the community structure we see within the listing of the 12 disciples. So the compassion of Christ, prayer for laborers, power from him to do the labor, and community. This is where discipleship happens. It's never solo. Okay. And that's why the church is very important. So Jesus establishes his church to provide discipleship for the shepherdless. He saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. I want laborers. I want disciples. Go and bring them into the fold. Because what, what does a wandering sheep need? It needs structure. It needs order. It needs orientation. The lost need to know where they belong. They need to know what's up. This is what discipleship does. It provides this orientation for us. In fact, um, when I say discipleship, this is what I mean. This is the definition I came up with through my class. Uh, I wrote this big old stinking paper, which is kind of whatever it was. But um, this is what I. This is how I defined it after some research. I see discipleship as developing a Christological orientation of one's entire life. What do we mean by that? A Christological orientation of one's entire life. An orientation is. Uh, the direction you need to go. Like you, when you're disoriented, you're dizzy because you're not quite sure where, where is north? We need north. A Christological orientation means everything in our lives orbits around Christ. We're ordering everything. He's the compass. He's true north. So it's a Christological orientation of one's entire life so that their entire person, body, soul, spirit, all of us, sometimes discipleship isn't, this is how you pray. Sometimes discipleship is, this is how we handle stress, or this is how we eat, or this is called a bedtime. Sometimes that's what discipleship is. It's the whole person. So it's a Christological orientation of one's entire life so that their entire person assumes his likeness. That's what we're after in discipleship, that we start to assume the likeness of Christ. Um, or to be more technical, as we've taught before, you could just insert the word theosis there. Discipleship is to lead us to theosis to Christ-likeness. But there's an intentional ordering. And that, that word orientation, I think, is really important when you see sheep who are bewildered, who are lost, who are aimless, who are confused, who are distressed, who are downtrodden. They need an orientation in life. People need somewhere to look, somewhere to walk. They need guidance. They just need a little bit of order, especially in a modern world, which basically said, tear down institutions, just let people do what they want. You have every movie at your fingertips, every song at your thumb tips. Like, you can do whatever you want. There's no order to life. Light bulbs made bedtimes a thing of the past. Go to bed when you're tired. Um, there's no order. And sometimes we need discipleship just gives structure. It gives lifestyle. It helps us. Um, so how long does this last? The duration is your entire life. You never stop being a disciple. You're never greater than your master. That being Jesus. Um, the scale of discipleship is one's entire being, as we already said, physical and spiritual. So, in other words, discipleship is more than information, it's transformation. Sometimes we think discipleship is just give people information about the faith. That's good, it helps. But it's also about transforming our habits and our orientation in life. Uh, so here's what T.W. Mason said. I thought this was really it's really hit home. Discipleship was not matriculation in a rabbinical college, but apprenticeship to the work 
of the kingdom. It's not matriculation of a rabbinical college. It's not just letting all the information trickle into us. It's apprenticeship. What's apprenticeship? Come alongside me and learn how to hammer steel into a sword. That's apprenticeship. And that's what discipleship is. This is how Christians live. This is what we do. This is what we value. This is how we pray. This is how we avoid specific temptations we're struggling with. Um, apprenticeship. Okay, so in giving all that consideration, I thought, what's, like, that's all technical, right? And I get it. It's kind of like, okay, definitions are good. They provide some clarity, but what does this look like? And it's like, how do you give a model? Because it's going to be different with everybody that we're with in our life. And then it kind of just hit me. I, I, I can't say I can give credit. I don't know where this comes from. I might have just thought of it. It may not be original. I'm, I'm sure a hundred of people have written a book on it. I just haven't wrote, read, read it yet. Um, but it hit me that there's a perfect model of discipleship in the Psalms. Jesus is calling. He sees sheep without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. The perfect model of discipleship is the good shepherd. We disciple others the way that God shepherds us. That's what it looks like. And so let's just end by looking at Psalm 23. Some of you are like, I ain't turning there. I know it by heart. That's perfectly fine. Um, Yeah, Psalm 23 has three movements. And each of these, I mean, you can get way too, like, restrictive. And that's not where we want to go. But just kind of glean some thoughts from Psalm 23. And it begins like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So here, these anxious sheep that Jesus sees in the Gospel of Matthew are in need of these things. They're in need of green pasture and rest. Like the whole first three verses is a picture of rest. It's a picture of restoration. This is what people need. Um, and... How how do we show people pasture? What does it look like for a sheep to have pasture? Maybe this is simply just teaching like, look, prayer is your pasture. When you're anxious, the Bible tells us to be anxious in nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your request be made known to God. Uh, it's also interesting, isn't it, that the word pastor actually comes out of the word pasture. Um, and that maybe there's something about church context, too, that being in church can give us rest and restoration, that there's some aspect there in our spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture reading and worshiping in church that these give us rest and restoration. But then this happens, and every life has this moment. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's going to be a bad moment every Sheep is going to feel like, I'm abandoned, I'm lost. And if we don't have discipleship and community and relationships, who are they going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with? This is where we see discipleship is modeled with courage. It's modeled with companionship. We gain courage in hardship because we know someone is walking with us in it. 
And yes, you know that God is with you, but sometimes that's never made clearer than one of God's people is right there holding your hand, right there praying with you, right there helping you when you cry, right there listening to your questions as you're angry at God or you're wondering what's going to happen. This is companionship and discipleship provides that forever companionship wherever we walk in life. The church needs this kind of companionship. And we see the comfort that it gives. Um, He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's the companionship. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They give me courage in this valley. And that's the gift that the church can provide if we care and have compassion for one another and pray for laborers and rely on God's power and live in communities that we can be companions to each other in the valley of the shadow of death. And then we see the final portion. You'll notice there's a trans, uh, not a transgression, a progression here um, from sheep eating grass and lying and, uh, in grass and drinking from pools Now they're going to eat from tables and from goblets and treated like sons. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a picture of communing with God. The table prepared, the table prepared, the cup overflowing. He gives us all that we need. He treats us as sons. As we're discipled, that's the point. We go from bewildered, lost, confused, aimless, disoriented sheep. We are discipled and we're made into sons who can stand, who can commune with God, who can dwell in his house, who can have goodness and mercy, follow them. And then they can turn to those lost and confused sheep and say, don't worry about that valley. I'm going to hold your hand right through it. This is, this is what God does for us. And if we are at a loss, let's just meditate upon the fact or meditate upon how God has discipled us, how he has shepherded us. And then we turn and we simply do the same to others. If you don't know what else to do, Psalm 23 perhaps can be a guide for us. This is how we walk with people. So to disciple is to shepherd the way that God shepherds us. Are we willing to disciple? And are we willing to be discipled?